Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, so we're going to start Hebrews chapter 5 this morning, and this is, this is going to be fun. It's all about Jesus' priesthood and what he, what does that even mean, his priesthood, and why, why is he our high priest, and what does that mean biblically for us as his people? So, we're going to dive in and go through 10 verses this morning, the first 10 in Hebrews chapter 5. And as we dive back in, you know, I prayed this before we started, but the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So as we, as we refocus after Passover week last week, which was awesome to go through with everybody, but as we refocus, let's not forget the point of going through Hebrews is that we are going to, going to have confidence when Jesus appears. We are to have confidence in and be unashamed when Jesus shows up. And we're going to trust in the Lord that the anointing which we have have received of him, the Holy Spirit, that it abides in you and each one of us if you're saved. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now little children abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. It still blows my mind that 1 John 2.27 was the verse that I had used my, for the last 11 years in studying the Bible and in, the, in being committed to that. But I never put together when God gave me and wrote down the mission statement for the church and to, to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return. I had never even read on the next verse from 1 John 2.28 of how much that links to that mission statement. It's just so cool. So we're going we're gonna to use that, the anointing, as we go through it. On the outline here, we're starting chapter 5. So we are making progress, at least. We're, we're on chapter 5. We've been at this for a few months now. But we're going to go through the first 10 verses of Jesus as our high priest. And then next week, it'll be the third warning, which is probably... One of the most complicated set of passages in the entire New Testament, and a lot of people use what we'll go through next week. A lot of people use it as a reason or an excuse as to why they think you can lose your salvation. And when you break it down in the Greek, it's not at all what it's saying. So I think next week will be really encouraging to all of you also as we go through that. It's a it's a challenging set of scriptures, but today we get a joyous set of Jesus as our high priest. So chapter 4, if you remember two weeks ago, it closed with the theme of Jesus being our high priest. So the last three verses, chapter 4, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in, to help in time of need. So chapter 5, it's really a continuation of the close of chapter 4. So one thing as you're studying your Bible too, just keep in mind, the chapter, the chapter divisions are man-made. So those were back in, I don't know, or somewhere around in the 1500s or before that, I don't remember the exact date, but those are man-made. Don't get too hung up on chapter divisions. Sometimes a theme or a concept from the Holy Spirit continues into the next set of chapters and verses. They're obviously they're so convenient to have because for reference points, but don't don't be confused. Those were not Holy Spirit inspired. So to start chapter five, verse one, for every high priest taken from among men, is ordained to men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So don't forget, the high priest, he was ordained by God directly. 
And it was not an office by choice. It was a calling. So you didn't, Aaron didn't raise his hand and say, hey, could I be the high priest, the first one of the, of the group? It was a calling by God to be the high priest. And so the calling was to be the representative of the people before Almighty God. And that was the point. It was a, an anointing. And, you know, when you really think about that today, I think it's, this is something the Lord's really talked to me a lot about the last couple of years. But serving in the church is a calling. You know, it's not a career choice. It's not, a, it's not something, an office you should take lightly. It's a calling. God calls people, just like Jesus walked through the New Testament and said, come with me. Or, or join me, or look people in the eyes, and they dropped their nets and just joined him. It was a calling. Same, same thing here for the high priesthood. But in Hebrews 5.2, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity? So the Greek word here for ignorant, who can have compassion on the ignorant? It's, it really means to err or sin through mistake to be wrong. So it's not as if, yes, you, there can be some sin in your life that maybe you don't even realize is sinful yet, in which you might be ignorant to that point. But once you get saved and you have the Holy Spirit, you will start to feel that, right? If you didn't know it was sin before, you'll, you'll definitely know afterwards. But the Greek word for the end of this for on them that are out of the way. This is interesting. It means to lead away from the truth, to lead into error, to deceive, to be led into error, to be led aside from the path of virtue, to go astray, sin, to sever or fall away from the truth of heretics. Now, this was used a lot of, think of the religious zealots and the people that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. They were out of the way. They were people that were heretics in a, in a lot of sense. And so throughout the book of Acts, think about this too. The Christian walk is often referred to as the way. And I, and I love the pun by the Holy Spirit here. Have compassion on those that are out of the way. So they're no longer on the way. They've gone astray in some regard. They veered off the path. Now, if you take that theme, the way, and you go back to the Old Testament, look at the children of Israel roaming through the wilderness because the, the Lord will often use the phrase of they're taking the high way or they, they are being blocked from the way. It's kind of a, it's, a, it's a slight pun by the Holy Spirit in linking that same concept from Acts all the way back to the wilderness wanderings that these people were supposed to be walking on the way, the way of the Lord. Okay, verse 3, and by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. So the high priest, remember the role back in Aaron's time, was to be the representative for the people to God. He was the only one, the high priest, that role was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies, before the Ark of the Covenant, before the mercy seat and offer that blood atonement or that sacrifice or whatever the offering was for the people. And so you had to go through a lot of ceremonial and rituals and preparation. It, was, it took time to get there. You didn't just take any priest out of the Levitical priesthood and say, okay, you're the high priest. It took a lot of work. And so that's exactly what Jesus does for us. Look at 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one. He, was the, he is the high priest. And he is the only one that could willingly go into the Holy of Holies and offer that blood that he shall on the cross. He did that for us. And that's why after he's crucified, the veil in the temple was torn because it's an open house at that point. Everyone from Hebrews 4, 16, like we looked at, can run boldly into the throne room now because that blood was laid down on behalf of you and I. And so he's the only one, the man. And we've talked a lot about why did he have to be a man? Well, the typology is all through the Bible, 
But remember, the kinsman redeemer from Ruth had to be a man, a next of kin. Well, Adam forfeited dominion of the earth. He blew it. He willingly joined Eve in her place. And so to get dominion back, the kinsman redeemer had to be a man. Legally, it had to be a man. And so that's one of the reasons, one of many reasons, why Jesus had to come in the flesh as a man. So in verse 4, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So like I mentioned, Aaron was the first high priest called to the, by the Lord to this office, and he never sought it. If you remember, Aaron was, was chosen. In fact, Moses was chosen but didn't want to do it all on his own, so God gave him Aaron. <laughs> Remember, Moses uh, was complaining, I'm hard of speech. I can't talk to people. How will I get in front of the Pharaoh and, and share this word? I, I'll stumble, I'll stutter, whatever. I don't know if Moses had a, a speech problem or if just a confidence problem, probably confidence, though. But it was not based on merit or a position that was earned. Remember, it's a calling, and Jesus was called. Jesus was called to become our high priest. So when you think about the Levitical priesthood, uh, Aaron was singled out by God and called into the priesthood in Exodus 28. He was reconfirmed in that office. Remember in number 17, his rod blossoms in the Ark of the Covenant. And then Korah leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. We've covered that a couple times. But the earth swallows them up in number 16. Remember Moses Aaron, and Aaron are called and anointed. Korah leads a rebellion against them full of pride by saying, hey, they're not the only ones that can serve the Lord and that are chosen by God. Why are you calling them out? You know, what's so special about them? I've got an anointing. And so pride set in, and he tried to lead a rebellion against them. And as a result, God makes a new thing happen in number 16, where the earth opens up and swallows them into Abraham's bosom uh, until Jesus returns in Revelation 19. So Saul attempted to take the role of the priest. So this is important. What you'll notice, starting from the 13 tribes of Jacob, so 13, it's not just 12. Remember, he has Joseph, who then has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob comes down to Egypt and adopts Manasseh and Ephraim as his own. And that's why from that point forward in the Bible, you always have 13 names for the tribes of Israel, and God always lists only 12 of them. So he leaves one out intentionally every single time. In Revelation, when the 144,000 are sealed, he leaves out Dan, for example. And we went through that in detail as to why did he leave out Dan. Well, Dan was the one that let idolatry enter the land. He, he's the one that refashioned the golden calf. He's the one that took it upon himself to go and stray against Yahweh. And so Dan is not sealed as the other Jewish people in that seven-year tribulation. But the royal line and the priestly line from that point are always to be separate. Levi was the line of the priests. Judah was the line of the kings. And so they're kept separate. And Saul in 1 Samuel, can you go back real quick, Aaron? Uh, Saul in 1 Samuel tries to do both a priestly and a kingly duty in 1 Samuel 13. So remember, he, he performs his own sacrifice, and as a result... God rejected him as king and anointed David because it was supposed to be separate. And like Saul, King Uzziah in Isaiah's day, he tried to take on the role of a priest and burn incense. And in response, remember, the Lord strikes him with leprosy until the day of his death. Now, when you're sensitive to this, when you get to 1 Samuel 30, and this was, I'm just sharing a, a tidbit from my daily reading this week. But in 1 Samuel 30, David does this. And let me just read these. I didn't put these in the notes. I should have. God reminded me of this this morning. But and David said to Abathar, the priest, Amalek's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. Remember, the ephod was the breastplate of the high priest with each stone, one for each of the 12 tribes. And God would talk to them through those stones with colored light a lot of, a lot of times. It's pretty cool. But he brings the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now, I was reading that in, actually in preparation for this message this week, and I thought, Lord, why? 
everybody else, Saul, Uzziah, and there's lots of others. They try to do kingly duties and priestly duties, and they get slapped on the hands when they do that. But David here in 1 Samuel 30, 7 and 8, does a priestly duty as a king, but God allows it. And so I was just asking him, Lord, why did you allow David to do that? And he answered so quickly, and he just said, well, he wasn't anointed king yet. Because remember, he wasn't officially king yet. He was on the run from Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. And so David was promised to be king, but he wasn't acting in the role yet. And so the Lord allowed this to happen as a priestly duty. I thought that was kind of neat of the Lord to share that. So in Hebrews 5, verse 5, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Okay, Jesus was referred to as our high priest back in, in Hebrews chapters 2 and 3. And this verse right here in Hebrews 5.5, 5, it's a direct quote from Psalms 2. In Psalms 2, it's one of the most interesting conversations in the entire Bible. I love Psalms 2. We covered this back in Revelation 6, but it's been a while, so I wanted to show it again. But in the Bible, it's between all three members of the Trinity. So you can take Psalms 2 and diagram it and figure out which member of the Trinity is speaking, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the next slide, we'll look at, here's the diagramming right here. The, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so when you look at this in Psalms 2, it's an amazing discourse between the Trinity. Hold on one sec. And when you, when you see this, sorry, it's kind of small on the screen back there. I can't read it. Uh, Psalms 2.1, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. So these first four verses, this is the Holy Spirit speaking. And then verse 5, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Verse 5 is the Father. And verse 6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's God speaking, the Father still. Verse 7, I will declare the decree, The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So verse 7 is the son, Jesus quoting the father. Verse 8 goes back to the father. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then it closes with the Holy Spirit again. Verses 10 through 12. Speaking to the kings of the earth, be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. There's that word again, the way. It's pretty amazing how the Lord uses this. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Speaking of the son, because the Holy Spirit calls everyone to the Son. So I love that Psalms 2, it's an amazing psalm. And I love that the Lord literally sits in heaven and laughs at what the kings of the earth are trying to do. And when you look at just everything that's gone on in the world, all of the change the last couple of years, and as it continues, be encouraged that the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs at what the world is trying to do on behalf, or against, I should say, his people God does not take it lightly. And so I, I love it because the Lord is a warrior king. Jesus is a warrior king, and he will set things right. And praise God that we have that encouragement. And the book of Revelation doesn't end with just endure until you die, right? Just, just live through the, temp, the uh, suffering, the persecution, all of it. Let the heathens and the pagans take over the world and... Um, you're going to be driven out of your churches and into homes and just sit there until you die. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not. It's so encouraging because Jesus is coming back to set things right. And he's going to sit his throne 
in Zion, just like God promises in verse 6 there. So Hebrews 5, 6, as he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this verse is a direct quote from Psalms 110, verse 4. Now when you look at Psalms 110, verse 4, it says right there, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's an important concept here with, with repentance. See, repentance, my, my whole life growing up, I heard this phrase, repent and you'll be saved. I'm sure all of you have heard that phrase at some point in the church in your life. Repentance has nothing to do with salvation. And that's why churches, frankly, are filled with people that think they're saved, but really never accepted Jesus and got filled with the Holy Spirit. Repentance comes after salvation. Repentance just means to turn away from. So when it says the Lord has sworn and will not repent, it's not saying the Lord has sin that he needs to repent of. It's saying he's made a declaration and he's not going to turn away from it. The declaration he made here is that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it's, it's, it's a, I know it sounds like a subtlety, but it's important because when you're witnessing to people that are struggling with anything in their lives, if they're you know, drug addicts, if they have alcohol problems, if they've got anything in their lives they're trying to get rid of, and they're not born again, and you go to them and you say, hey, just repent and you'll get saved. And then they never, it never happens. They can't break that stronghold because they never confessed, Romans 10, 9, the name Jesus got Holy Spirit filled and had the authority and the power to then repent and turn away from what was enchaining them, to break those chains. That's why it's so important. And it sounds, I know it's a technicality to some, but it's really important. It's important that you understand that concept, especially as you grow in your walk and you're witnessing to people. But what is this, what is this Melchizedek guy? You know, he just kind of shows up here. Hebrews 7 through 10 is going to develop a comparison between these two priestly orders and these two priestly mediators. The Melchizedek priesthood was a foreshadowing of Christ's priesthood versus the Levitical priesthood, which could never fulfill the requirements to purify sin. And so when you look at this, Psalms 110 is all about Melchizedek at the end. And it's quoted, verse 1 is quoted 25 times in the New Testament alone, which is incredible. Verse 4 is quoted four times, including the one right here in Hebrews 5, 6. And the entire psalm is central to understanding the better high priest that we have in Jesus. So let's look at this. In Psalms 110, verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So this verse right here, this is the verse that Jesus uses to later confound the lawyers and the religious zealots, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these religious attacks. He uses this verse to confound his enemies in the New Testament. And I love this. When you look at Matthew 22, this is Jesus in verse 41. I love that Jesus has kind of a, an ornery side to him that, that he... You see this all once in a while. I can't wait to talk to him about some of these discourses. But while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, see, he knows their hearts, right? He knows that they don't think he's the Messiah. They're rejecting him as Lord. They don't believe all these prophecies that he's been fulfilling, the healings and the miracles he's doing, the leprosy that's healed, the blind seeing, etc. And he just asked them, saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they say unto him, the son of David. And he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, and here's this quote from Psalms 110, verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Do you see the, the irony of it? See, Jesus had to be the seed of David, but yet back in Psalms 110, David's calling him Lord. So how is that happening? And he's, he's already, he's got them in this mental vice trap of this endless do loop, if you remember Fortran from college uh, computer programming. 
but Fortran, this endless do loop, it just keeps cycling and cycling. And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. And so they were so confounded by this one verse and locked that they couldn't answer it, they chose instead to never ask him anything else again. Because he had to be the seed and the offspring of David, but yet eternal and creator and king and Messiah all at the same time. And there's a whole background on the, on the genealogies of Jesus. And when you look at Luke and Matthew and how that genealogy works out, it's just incredible. But he uses this to confound them. And I just love that, that Jesus does that. He was supposed to be the son of David all through the Old Testament. They knew that from 2 Samuel 7. Remember, here's the Davidic covenant. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, God promises David a kingdom forever. And so that's the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. That's an important verse to lock in your memory. Psalm 78 and Micah 5 both have allusions to this as well. Micah 5 talks about how he's going to be from Bethlehem, the house of bread. We talked about that at Passover last week. Proverbs even has this allusion, if you could use that phrase, in Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? And I love that verse because Jesus is the one that ascended up into heaven. He descended and ascended. He gathered the wind in his fist. Remember, he calmed the storm with his word. He bound the waters in a garment around the earth. And he established all the ends of it. And his name is Jesus. And I love that Proverbs even has a hint of him as creator. So in Psalms 1, 2, verse 2, or 110, verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. And here it is, verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, we talked about him briefly at communion last week, but he is so mysterious in the Bible. He shows up in Genesis 14, he's talked about in Psalms 110, and then he goes away completely until here in Hebrews 5. And so when you look at who is Melchizedek, Genesis 14, this is a really cool story about Abraham or Abram at the time before God changed his name. But Genesis 14, 5, if you, if you remember, this is the battle of the nine kings. You have four kings led by Chedorlaomer versus five kings, and they're battling, and they end up taking Abraham's nephew, Chedorlaomer, leads the charge, wins, takes Lot, Abraham's nephew, takes him captive and his family, and then Abraham does something really cool. So starting in verse 5 here, in the 14th year came Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth, Karnim, and the Zuzims and Ham and the Emims in Shaviv, Kirathami. Excuse me, I'm going to totally butcher some of these names. And the Horites in Mount Sur unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Now, those names of those tribes are actually tied to the Nephilim from Genesis 6. So those names in the Hebrews, each one of them is specific to a characteristic that they had. And these were the, the illegitimate uh, union of, of Satan trying to create man in his image, which is what led to the flood in Genesis 6. And that's a whole deep so- story as well. But they returned and came to Imshapat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites and dwelt in, I'm not even going to try it. And there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zebum and the king of Bela, that name is Zoar. Zoar means little, by the way. That's, remember, when Lot is saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And he says, can't I go to that city? It's but a little city. He's talking about Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the valley of Siddim. And so with Chedomlir, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amphriel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elessar, four kings with five. And the valley of Siddim was full of slime pits. Think Whenever I see that verse 10 there, I always think of the land before time. Remember that old cartoon movie when the dinosaurs are stuck in the slime pits and they're sinking and the brontosaurus comes to help, whatever. That's, that's, get that visual. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram. Now, this is before God has changed his name. So remember, Abram, God changes his name to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, and all he does is he adds in the Hebrew the letter H in the middle of their name and Sarah at the end of her name. But that H represents the breath of God. It's the He in the Hebrew. It represents, think of it as the Holy Spirit. So what God did was he changed them by breathing the Holy Spirit into them and changed their name. Now, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament would come and go off of people, so don't get totally confused by that. But what he did was he made them a new creation with the breath of God, which is really cool. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Anar. And these were confederate with Abram. And so you have this, get the picture here. You have these battle of nine kings. You have the Shemites and the Hamites, and you have the king of Shinar, the king of Elisar, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of nations. That list against the Hamites, those other five kings, Bera, Bersha, Shinab, uh, Shemember, and king of Bela, or Zoar. Now, the list of the kings on the right, they're listed in Genesis 14, verse 2, so I didn't have them in the notes, but you could go back and find them. So they all served, get the picture, they all served Chedorlaomer for 13 years. And in the 14th year, they rebel. There's this rebellion against him. And the order of the list is interesting because God places Shinar first. When you see this list later, God places the king of Shinar first, but yet Chedorlaomer is the king that they're all subservient to. And it's just a hint because Shinar links to Babylon. And so God, pay attention to lists in the Bible when God lists something in a specific order, it's on purpose. And usually the one that's listed first has an important reason. So God is telling you, even though Chedorlaomer was the leader at the time, the Shinar is going to be important later. And it is with uh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the exile, all of that. So go back to Genesis 14, starting in verse 14. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Yeah, I just get this picture of uh, something happening to one of our families in here, and, and Chris, our beloved uh, piano player, gathering his, I don't know, 1,800 guns and mustering a small army, and we're, we're charging after them. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus and brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. So Abraham mustered a small army out of his own household, which is incredible. It's one of the ways you know that Abram was probably at this time one of the wealthiest men on earth, because he has his own trained servants that are military trained, and he goes and takes the battle to these kings. He's like, I don't care how many of them there are. There may have been thousands and thousands of these soldiers, and Abraham goes with 300 and some odd guys, 318 guys, and pursues them and conquers them and divides a plan. Like the 318 divide, flank them, conquer these four kings, and bring Lot back. It's just, that would be such a cool movie. I wish somebody would do a movie about that. But this was not some, you know, you think about Abraham and how he roamed the desert. This wasn't some old, timid guy 
with a long beard and a, and a staff. This man was a, a man of war and very trained with a, with a small army. Okay, verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer, and of the kings that were with him in the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, so here's, here's the first place this guy shows up. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And so this is, this is such a cool spot. This is the first place bread and wine is established in the Bible. Right here, and again, I think I mentioned this during communion, but the law first mentioned, right? Bread and wine, this is the first place, so it's significant. There's a type and a foreshadowing of Jesus somehow in this. So it's being administered by Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is likely Jerusalem. So he's the king over God's city and the high priest. So he's acting in both roles before the tribes of Jacob, and it was separate. Uh, bread and wine shows up next after this with Joseph in Genesis 40 while Joseph is in prison. Remember, the baker has the dream about the bread, and he was hung on a tree. And it's the same concept as Jesus' broken body hanging on a tree. He was hung, not crucified, but the typology is there. The butler had the dream about a vine with three shoots off of it, and he was restored to be next to Pharaoh. So, again, the body must be destroyed so the blood can be given and thus the winemaker, the, the butler, he had the blood which represented the atonement and being restored to a seat at the king's table. It's just like us with the blood of Jesus. When you're atoned by his blood, you get restored to a seat in the throne room. So because of that, those prevail, those concepts prevail all the way to Jesus. But by his broken body, we have the opportunity to appropriate the shed blood to ourselves and thus be granted a seat next to the king in the throne room. So who was Melchizedek? Who was this guy? His name means king of righteousness. He receives tithes from Abraham. And Levi, yet unborn, thus paid tithes to Melchizedek. Okay, God uses this um, later in Hebrews to build a case on how why Jesus is greater than the, the priesthood of Levi. Because, because Levi was in the loins of Abraham, God is going to use this. He thus gave tithes to Melchizedek, and Jesus' priesthood is of a type or a foreshadowing from Melchizedek. Thus, their priesthood is superior. And so it's, a, it's an interesting, logical argument that God makes. Melchizedek is only mentioned in two places in the entire Old Testament. Here in Psalms 110, and he, everything that he does in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the king of righteousness, Jesus himself. Okay, Melchizedek has no genealogy in the Bible. His death is not recorded. He administers bread and wine, and like Jesus, he was a king and a priest. Now, the genealogy piece is important because, remember in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. See, Jesus had no beginning, and he has no ending. And so by the Holy Spirit deliberately leaving that out of Melchizedek, he thus fits that model also, that he has no beginning recorded in the Bible. Now, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. So Jesus you know, you often heard uh, Jesus cried blood in the garden. This is where that, that idea gets from, is Luke 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he, pried more, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So I don't know if you can say it was crying, says he was sweating. It's not really that critical, but he was in such agony that he was exerting and ex uh, blood was being extruded from his body some way. He was in so much pain. And that's kind of what Hebrews 5 or 7 is talking about here. When he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying 
and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. So Jesus' prayer to be saved from death was answered at the resurrection. So because he was resurrected, this prayer was answered. And there's a strong declaration because of that in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So because of that, the resurrection, he was victorious. So in verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So in the English, you could get confused on this verse. You could say, well, what, what do you mean Jesus had to learn? Jesus obviously doesn't have to learn anything. He's the creator and the greatest teacher. He's all of it. He didn't learn obedience. What he learned, this word is to practice in the Greek. So he's an example to us in practicing obedience. Think about it as, yet practice he obedience by the things which he suffered. Just think about it like that. In the Greek, you could pick that up, but in the English, it sounds a little confusing that he needed to learn something, and that's clearly not the case. He was obedient to his call and willingly suffered on our behalf. In Matthew 26, look at these three verses. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? That thus it must be. See, it had to be. He was, he was obedient unto suffering and to death to fulfill everything that was prophesied of his first arrival. So in verse 9, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order, and there it is again, of Melchizedek. So he's, his priesthood was foreshadowed by Melchizedek. Don't confuse, Melchizedek was not a pre-incarnate version of Christ. He was a separate man. He was a real guy that was a priest and a king in Jerusalem. And Jesus is a for, well, he was a foreshadowing of Jesus. That's why God over and over says, after the order of. It's a type or a model. But Jesus is the author of eternal salvation for those that obey because he then controls and writes the rest of your eternity. See, look at the end of verse 9 here. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So if you allow, when you deny Jesus, you deny his ability to write the rest of your story for eternity. But when you're obedient to him, like he was obedient, then you open up and you allow him to write as the author he writes the rest of your story as eternal salvation. So in 1 Timothy 4.10, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. For, and then 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Praise God for that. So that closes Jesus' priesthood in the, in the high priestly order of Melchizedek. Now, as we prepare to close out here today, I want to go through these slides again, this, this call to action, because I haven't gone through these recently. But this is really to prepare for next week. So in, in next week, the third warning that comes up is going to be, a, it's, it's really, really important that you understand this third warning in Hebrews and what it's all about, that you don't, you can't continually live in sin and still have a deep longing relationship with Jesus. And that's what the third warning is going to go through. So God wants to set you among princes and to inherit the throne of glory. In 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes. See, that's what Jesus wants to do in your life is to set you among a prince as a prince by the prince of princes and the king of kings. 
And how do you do that? Well, you get into the Word of God, and you've got to understand the weapons of our warfare as His people, that the world right now is pushing hard to subdue and to quiet and to still the church. And if you are not in the Word of God, you are susceptible to fall, to fall as victim to that. And so faith, what is it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that substance is Jesus. He's all that we hope for. And why is faith important for us in Jesus as the church? For without faith, it's impossible to please him in Hebrews 11, verse 6. And so how do you go get faith so you can learn the weapons of your warfare? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And you've got to do it daily from Acts 17, 11. So you've got to put that armor on and carry that sword daily to push back and fight for your children and fight for your community, fight for your church. I mean, fight for this group of believers, fight for Randy and I and Kelly and Austin and Mason and Jenny and Chris and Casey and everybody that's here that serves every week. Fight for them and pray for them. So don't be negligent and you've got to run that you may obtain from 1 Corinthians 9, 24. So remember when you're, you've crossed the Jordan, you're trying to enter into God's rest. God tells the children of Israel to take down these strongholds and the three areas that they didn't obey God were the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Golan Heights. And he says, if you don't do that from Numbers 33, 55, there'll be thorns in your side. And shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. And that's the same thing with our lives today. If you don't uproot those strongholds completely, then God, you're going to be vexed with a thorn in your side continuously in your walk with this like anchor just shackled around your ankle. And God's telling you to uproot it completely. Get rid of it. Whatever stronghold, whatever you're going was going on in your life, if you're carrying something that you need to get rid of, you've got to do that to press on and to run and to obtain. You know, when you, when you think about that, you can't stand against your enemies when you have something accursed in your life. Remember from Joshua 7, they had something accursed in their life, and thus they were defeated in war and in battle. The same is with us. You've got to keep pressing on to your inheritance west of the Jordan. And remember in Joshua 22, some people, three and a half of the tribes, wanted to give up and stay east of the Jordan. They didn't want to press on. They got weary. They got tired from the walk. They were subdued. They, were, they became weak and ineffectual for the Lord. They didn't go on to what he had called them to. And I just want to encourage all of you today to please press on to what God is calling you to. One of the things that the Lord spoke to me about on Thursday this past week, I was out at, I'm sure all of you have realized the, the wind velocity the last 72 plus hours has been absolutely insane. And my son was having soccer practice and I was out there and just walking this trail. And I really, I re- it was April the 21st, so Thursday. And I really needed to hear something from God because the war, just in our lives and a lot of things going on, has been intense lately, the spiritual warfare and the attack. And I just, I was walking this trail and just asking the Lord, God, just give me something. Let me know that this is short-lived. Let me know that something's changing. Let me know that something is going to happen, that you're moving. And it was so windy. It was unbelievable how windy it was. And God just ever so subtly just said, the winds of change are here. And, and I sat there and it just struck me so hard. And so we started, I just started talking to him about that. What do you mean by that? The winds of change are here. And there's a lot going on in the world right now. And in the church, there's, I have a deeper anticipation of what's next now for not only our church here at New City, but for the, the world and the Lord's moving in the world and this, this incredible revival of him calling people into the kingdom. And at the end of the trail where I turned, there was a, a tree 
that was, I don't know, it was maybe about as high as this podium, maybe a little higher. And it was totally dead and it had been cut off. And, and as I was sitting there looking at it, <laughs> the, Lord, the Lord said, Matt, look at this tree. And I was looking at it and it kind of reminded me of the fig tree that he cursed in the New Testament. And he said, thus is the future of everything rooted in the world. And go tell my people to quit being rooted in things of the world because this is the future of it. It becomes totally worthless. It's barren. It was burned on some ends. It couldn't grow. It had nothing productive in it at all. And he's, I'm telling you all, he has a deep call on your life to get uprooted out of the world and into the kingdom completely and to chase after him and to no longer just be content with what was want and desire and want more and more and more of him because the more you do that man the more joy you have in your life every single day in running with absolute contentment with joy with patience with long suffering with love he's he's got a deep calling for all of you i promise so seek that out so if you do need to know Jesus and you're watching this online or in this room today, it's really simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. You can get born again and then you can have the power to repent like we talked about. Then you can run hard for the Lord and the deeper things of God. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. God, thank you so much for this time together. God, I thank you for everyone that was here this morning. Lord, I do pray a blessing and a hedge of protection around all of those families that couldn't be here this morning, that are out. God, I pray that you would continue to pursue us in the greatest way you can, just like we sang this morning in that divine romance. God, to be pursued by the creator of the universe. It is something that is absolutely mind-blowing. And so, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Hebrews. I thank you so much, God, that the winds of change are here. And, Lord, whatever that means, whatever you have for us, God, we are here and ready, and we just love you so much for everything that you're doing in and through this church. It is your church, Jesus, and we love you and we thank you that we get to be a small part of it as a fiduciary for your kingdom. Thank you. Lord, be with us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.